welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. This episode of Behavioral Grooves is brought to you by two of the best BS companies in the world. What? What? (laughs) BS is short for behavioral science, Tim. Not that other acronym that you were probably thinking of. I was definitely going there. (laughs) Behavior Alchemy and the Lantern Group can help you apply a behavioral lens to your organization's issues. Right on. In this episode, we talked with Dan Hill, author, entrepreneur, and researcher. Dan founded Sensory Logic and has been one of the leaders and innovators in using facial coding to identify our underlying emotions. We found this discussion to be fascinating. I was particularly intrigued by how emotions play a much bigger role in our behaviors than most people believe and that most, in fact, over 95% of our brain processing is at a subconscious level. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Um, We talked about how Dan got started in this line of work and the research behind it. What piqued your interest, Kurt? I really liked how he talked about how emotions, which often get viewed as being less important than our rational brain, have a really powerful evolutionary component, and that Darwin was the first to realize that the face is where those emotions are expressed. Fascinating. Uh, We also talked about Dan's work in television and how he predicted, based on some facial coding and emotional responses from the people watching the pilots, the success of the Big Bang Theory. That was a pretty successful show. Yeah, pretty damn. So uh, we also spent most of our time talking about the seven emotions that are universally shared and not to be a Debbie Downer, but most of those emotions are negative. You're a Debbie Downer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but what was your favorite part? My, my absolute favorite part of the conversation was talking about his work with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Go, Go Wolves! Wolves! <laughs> Where he was identifying some of the underlying emotions of potential players and how they would fit or potentially not fit mm. with the team. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, Timberwolves, man. It was great. Um, but then we meandered into famous musicians, which, of course, you liked, right, Tim? You bet I did. That was just terrific. Uh, Dan's research for his new book called Famous Faces Decoded, a guidebook for reading others, uh, by the way, which will be available September 12, 2018, showed some underlying emotions of famous people, and lots of them were musicians, which I particularly liked. Turns out Dan's a big Beatles fan and he and I were surprised by this idea that George Harrison's a lot angrier than we thought. Mr. Love and and Love and Peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that transcendental meditation stuff. Pretty angry guy, actually. Wow. Yeah. Uh, It was really a fascinating conversation and I think that you, our listeners, will enjoy. And if you do, we have a favor to ask. Please share this with others or write a review. It really does go a long way in spreading the word about behavioral grooves. And with that, please sit back and enjoy our captivating conversation with Mr. Dan Hill. Okay, so we are recording. Dan Hill, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah, in our beautiful studios today. As you always talk about. Tim. I love the studio. I love this space. <laughs> I really do. I really do. So, um, uh, so Dan, uh, our our listeners uh, may or may not be familiar with you. What is for those of of our listeners who are not familiar with you? Your work in facial coding is 
pretty damn big. You, you've done a lot of work in it. What, do you, what would you want our listeners to take away to say, this is what you should know about Dan Hill? The first key thing is that facial coding is going to transform our society. We are already in the first stage of what's called face recognition. You may have seen a lot of coverage in the last couple months. For instance, there is a company in China that is the first uh, billion-dollar company in this field. It's what The Economist is calling the facial industrial complex. The facial industrial, industrial complex. complex. Wow. Uh, so they are using face recognition from anything as benign as saying, did you really go to church on Sunday, to be able to check into amusement parks based on face recognition. But it's also going to be used for things, and already is being used, for instance, in China, where they're monitoring people at political rallies, dissident events, and so forth. So they're using um, these superpowers for not good intent sometimes. Yes. So this is, you know... Both face recognition, which is the first stage, and facial coding, which is emotion recognition, which is the second stage, both of these, I think, can be used for good reasons, but uh, they can both be used for rather evil reasons, and unfortunately, I don't control those circumstances. No. No, no, but, and this goes back a long way, right? This, if, if I understand. I've been doing my work for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, what happened is I got really lucky one day, and someone I knew at IBM sent over an article from a now deceased Cornell University publication uh, called American Demographics. The article was uh, about the breakthroughs in brain science and how much we are emotional decision makers. Okay. I essentially said to myself, no shit. <laughs> of course we <laughs> exactly. are. Just look at the National Enquirer headlines, road rage. Uh, you can go any place and this is pretty evident. But in the business space, we have worked from a really rational perspective. We have hung on ridiculously to Rene Descartes I think, therefore I am, which is essentially the biggest lie going in Western civilization. A lot closer to reality is I feel, therefore I am, rather than I think, therefore I am. Uh, so the article alluded me to all of this. Well, let's start with a really basic killer statistic. The conservative estimation, 95% of our thought activity is not fully conscious. Uh, 95%. 95%. This is from neuroscience. This is from neuroscience. In, in reality, it's probably 98%. So what we're aware of in terms of what motivates us and drives us is just the tip of the iceberg. And so the bulk of that, what sunk the Titanic, yep. is below the waterline, yeah. and human beings are only dimly aware of that. So, so that blows, so, up, that so blows the, it up right away. So the component of actually getting into the prefrontal cortex and those aspects with every other input that's coming in yes. is such a small, minute component of our overall brain functioning element that, yeah, that's just amazing. How do you convince people that, that what they're thinking isn't close to 100% of all that they're perceiving and, and, what, and what, or what they're aware of is, is close to 100% of what they're thinking. Well, you can throw a whole litany of articles and scientific <laughs> studies at them, but for those who don't want to believe, they won't believe, which to my mind just proves we're emotional beings. Uh, so it's kind of a circular argument at some point with those who are stubborn. Uh, but uh, if they'll listen to science, if they'll simply look around them, I, I think the evidence is, is pretty strong. And these days you've got awards being given to like Daniel Kahneman for behavioral economics, obviously. Yep. I mean, there is so much that's developed in terms of momentum over the 20 years that I've done this work. And your work has been on the facial coding side of this more than the facial recognition side. Is that right? Uh, or cer cer you certainly. Um, you know, in my case, I was looking for a, the, the article in, in the Cornell publication was great. Okay. But it didn't give me a tool. 
Mm-hmm. And I have to be the, the son of a 3M executive who's in charge of 3M printed post-it notes, production, mm-hmm. sales, and marketing. He was an engineer by background. He's basically a finance and process guy like so many executives. So I knew from the get-go that if I was going to make a living from this, I mean, it was intellectually exciting. But to make a living from this meant you were going to have to have a process. Okay. You are going to have to have a methodology. So I went in a hunt for something because obviously brain scans – a little bit expensive, way invasive, and <laughs> yeah, the brain's right. complicated. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Emily Dickinson, said, who said, the brain is wider than the sky. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. Which is just a wonderful quote. So the face is a much more tangible thing to work from. You're talking about 42 muscles on each side of the face. Uh, you can see it. It's, it's much more concrete. And in my case, I have an advantage. My mom is an interior designer. I lived in Italy for two years as a boy. She took me around to the art museums. I was in love with Rembrandt by the age of seven. What Rembrandt does well is faces, facial expressions. So this was almost like a natural calling to me. Okay. But facial coding was something that I could implement as a tool. Okay. Uh, you are incredibly well read. Uh, by, by the way, just this is this is a maybe this sounds like a fan kind of a gushing kind of comment, but I love how you interject all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, wh- one of the quotes that you have on your site is is the J.P. Morgan comment: the observation that a man makes a decision for two reasons, a good reason and the real reason. Yes, <laughs> and, and I love that the implication is. Whatever the good reasons are, we don't always adhere to them. Yeah, no, someone would call them the intellectual alibi. You know, the, the way we justify the decision we've already made emotionally. Yeah. And that, that, and that is so true. Well, no, that doesn't happen to me. It, yeah. <laughs> of course. Tim, you are above this. However, the rest of us, we, you, we you, fall you, prey to yeah, this you and, every day. You, you and Renee Descartes. Yeah. You know, you're, you're perfect the, together. The two people in the entire history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not. All right, maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe I'm not. Uh, so one of the things that I found really interesting is some of the work that you have done with this, and in particular about TV shows. And we were talking before we started recording uh, about some of the work you did with Big Bang Theory. Can you help us understand a little bit about what you you do with with that in particular that that type of work if, if you sure, can sure first of all the way facial coding works is we need to be able to see faces whether we're working from video or in person so in this instance uh, Dave Poltrack at CBS came to me and said we've got five new shows for the fall uh, we have run the traditional testing using a dial where people consciously move a dial positive or negative in reaction to what they're viewing uh, we're interested in knowing where we should do the cutdowns, what pieces of the video are going to really pop for people, and what should we put our promotional weight behind. So we ran our tests. I handed him the report before he started reading it. I said, I'm really curious, so what did the dial tell you? He said, uh, pretty inconclusive. They're all more or less equal. Okay. And yet, uh, uh, these, are, these are five uh, different five shows? Five different shows or? for the fall. Oh, okay. And I said, well, you pretty much have to pick me up off the floor, Dave, because I'd put your, all your money behind one of these, and it happens to be Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and uh, that's, of course, done rather well. And the <laughs> yeah, other four yeah. all melted away within two seasons, two of them oh. right away, practically, like okay. three episodes or less. And, um, you know, it, it makes sense because people are very guarded. And, and the dial itself is just based on a fallacy. I was actually doing some work on the Mexican presidential race. I shared a, a, a taxi back to the airport with a guy who was a salesman for the dial. Okay. And I said, how do these work? And he said, well, you know, if they don't move the dial, 
we assume they had the same emotional response as the last time they ever moved the dial. That's a big assumption. That's a big assumption. So in yeah. other words, if you forget to move the dial, or as one executive said to me in Connecticut, he said, I love advertising. I was in one of those tests once. They said to me, move the dial. Yeah. I said, I've forgotten to move the dial. So I started moving it a lot. I don't know if it meant anything, but I started moving it so they wouldn't scream at me again. <laughs> oh my uh, so, you know, that, that's a big gap. Well, and it's also reflective, right? Because you have to be actually, again, to your part of the emotional response versus that cognitive. To, to, to move the dial, you have to think about that. So it's yeah. a, it's so a reaction. Yeah, and that's the next thing, time delay. Yeah. I mean, so I'm off to, I, I asked the guy in the taxi, I said, well, what's the time delay? He said, well, we estimated it as two to three seconds on average. I said, well, so in other words, it could be one second, it could be seven seconds. Yeah. And he said, mm, yeah. So tell <laughs> us how, how facial, um, the, the work that you do, the facial coding component of that. So how does that work then when you're looking at these television pilots? Sure. Well, the, the most basic thing is that Charles Darwin was brilliant. <laughs> And Darwin's essentially the antithesis to, you know, Rene Descartes. Okay. <laughs> uh, what Darwin said, well, emotions much ma must matter to us. Otherwise, they would have been weaned out of us over the course of evolution. They exactly. must give us some survival advantage. So then Darwin being, you know, the observer that he is said, okay, so where do we pick up emotions? How do we signal emotions? And he came to realize that in the face, we best communicate and reflect our emotions. And one of the reasons is it's the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. What? So it's quick, real-time, unfiltered data. So it's the opposite of the reflective, time-delayed dial. It is boom, it happens to us. And the, these are the 42 muscles in the these face? These are the 42 muscles in the face. They're connected directly to the skin. So directly to the skin. Instantaneous. Instantaneous and wow. unfiltered. You can camouflage, you can throw the, the smile over your negative reaction to somebody or someone's joke. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, can, you can try to go poker face, but if you know what you're looking for and you pay attention, uh, any expression will ha be very much like a wave breaking on the shore. Okay. It gathers, it has a peak, and it dissipates and goes. You should look for that rhythm. Uh, if the expression comes on too fast, lingers too long, goes off too abruptly, those are all signs that something's wrong. Mm. Uh, that it's fake. Basically. Yeah, that, yeah, that they're playing games with you. That's yeah, fake. yeah. In yeah. in your blog, you do a fair amount of checking out the current topics in the news. Yes. Uh, photographs from major events, um, just for the sake of of a recent event, uh, President Trump and uh, and Putin uh, in Helsinki. I think you had some interesting observations about that. Yes, yeah, the blog is called Faces of the Week. Uh, and uh, Putin, first of all, is someone I've looked at many times over. He's fascinating. Uh, he tends to smirk a lot. Okay. He has, it makes sense when you're a former KGB guy, he has no trust and no respect, essentially, for anyone and anything. Uh, wow. That's, that's what contempt is about. If you say that trust is the emotion of business, contempt is its opposite. Okay. The, and, and, and that's yeah. that's Putin's currency. That's Putin's currency uh, in heavy doses. But he has two other emotions, one of which was absent. Actually, both of them were absent in this case, in Helsinki. Uh, he's very angry, uh, particularly about the West and encroachment and not feeling like Russia is respected. He also has a lot of fear. I mean, you know, he, after all, has all his oligarch friends. They're getting older. There's no succession plan. I don't think Putin dares ever leave office because he's very wealthy 
and a lot of people would like to chisel in on his estate. Oh. So when mm. you when I normally watch Putin, uh, there's a lot of anger and fear, but he must have absolutely got what he wanted in that private two and a half hour meeting. Because he came out smiling, which is very rare for Putin, and he came out with a lot of smirking going along with it. So uh, he was he was just a happy camper. Oh my gosh! Oh, isn't that that's just, that's just so? I just have to ask, what's it like to look at the world? I remember the very first time that we met after after reading Body of Truth. And I was thinking, oh, man, I'm going to be walking into this meeting with Dan Hill, and he's going to be looking in my face, and he's going to know exactly what I'm, how I'm feeling. And it, and there was, it was disarming, and I was nervous, and I was like, okay, I, I'm just, I just kind of had to let go of that. <laughs> I, I have had more than a few meetings where about three minutes in, when they understand what I do, they said, just a minute, and then they swivel their chairs so I'm facing their back. <laughs> and then they said, we, now, we, now, we can keep, now we can keep talking. Uh, it, it really changes everything. I mean, I remember during the surge, uh, there was two generals testifying to Congress and saying that you know, everything was going pretty well in Iraq. Actually, this was prior to the surge. This is what caused the surge to be necessary. Mm-hmm. And they said everything was going well in Iraq. And I looked at their face and went, oh, no, no, no. This is a, not. It's a shit storm. Oh. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. And, 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 Obviously. and their faces told that story. They did tell that story. Yeah. Wow. I mean, if you've never been lied to in life, congratulations. What I love about <laughs> facial coding is that actions do speak louder than words. And this facial muscle activity are expressions. It's activity. It's things happening on the face. It's just more subtle and not a roadmap we're used to utilizing. Well, it's it. We did a, a another podcast with Todd Fonseca, who talked about micro expressions, which I think is yes. very you know, and yeah. and he has trained and teaches people on on micro expressions. So it's basically it's it's that type of work that you're doing and being able to to take into a, yeah, that's a more... that's the subtle version of facial coding. So micro expressions uh, refers to expressions that flit across the face very quickly. We're talking about like one fifth of a second. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, we could say they were talking about the entire country of Japan. Okay. Uh, be, 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 so, because that is the most difficult place to do facial coding. Okay, all of our Japanese listeners, we will apologize. If no, that's no, a I, no, I, no I, I mean no offense. Okay. I mean, it is a very, my wife lived in Japan. It is a very rich culture. But as a country, they are really, you know, packed in there. And they read very subtle signals. Yeah. Uh, oh. I was a student at Oxford University and uh, heard my favorite haiku ever, which was, only problem with haiku form. Just as you're about to say something, you. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the Japanese are subtle. They're discreet. They're very intelligent. So I mean no disrespect at all. Uh, but they are, they are a difficult customer because uh, they can say yes, and yes may mean yes, but it may mean kind of yes, My kind of ambivalent, not so much yes, and so forth. And that's the tea leaves they read, and then we have to come in and try to read, read them too. So, well, go, oh, go ahead, Kurt. No, but that, that brings up an interesting component. So the, the facial expressions that we have... Uh, have a cultural component yes. to them to a degree. They are universal in that the underlying physiology is the same. The right. same muscle movements correspond to the same emotions. What changes is what's called the display rules. Okay. So in other words, the duration and the intensity of the expression uh, will vary. Uh, for instance, we've tested in Brazil. The yeah. Brazilians live life like they play soccer. If we can't outscore you by five goals, we're not going to bother. <laughs> so they are the polar opposite of Japan. 
Uh, the other component to that can be, of course, what within the culture might uh, trigger reactions and what kind of reactions, what's the value system of one culture versus another. But from a pure facial coding point of view, yes, it's the display rules that does mean, yes, universality, no, uh, you don't read them quite the same every place. Some places are tougher. Okay. I wanted to get back to business, uh, that this idea that emotions are undervalued in the business world. Uh, what are you doing? What, what, what's your, you, you sound like a crusader on this. <laughs> what, what, what's your crusade about to try to, to, try to change this, uh, this mind, mindset? Well, I think you have to use uh, science for those who are willing to take the high road and for those who will only go via the low road, uh, talk about ka-ching. Talk about the fact that they're going to make more money and not waste as much money if they actually get a valid read on what's going on. Uh, the market research industry is something, if you want to talk about a crusade, I have been endlessly on a crusade to say we need to lift our games here. Uh, the idea that you simply ask someone a question and when they're a paid participant, they are going to dare to necessarily give you the honest truth and invest their time and effort in being articulate about what's faulty in your product. Uh, that's not so likely to happen. We would conclude from our research that the lip service gap is probably 10 to 40 percent. 10 to 40 percent. Depending on the study. Uh, and the cut of subject matter and uh, test participant and so forth. Well, so that's a huge gap. That's a real problem for companies uh, thinking they're going to release some product or new TV spot or whatever, and then it, it flops, and they're like, huh, why did that happen? Well, and you had talked about the gentleman uh, that was a – didn't have a job and made his paid his rent uh, by going. And yeah, this is, this is not something I'm I'm creating out of thin air. Uh, a wonderful expose on this was in New York Magazine. Someone who was uh, recruited into focus groups was very effusive. Uh, moderators loved him. The clients loved him even more. He was quoted in all the reports about why the product would sell more than you know mom, grandma's pancakes. <laughs> and uh, finally, in one case, he he said something negative. And he was never invited back. Suddenly he was off all the recruitment roles for all the focus group facilities in Manhattan. But he was paying his rent. He had no full-time job. I don't think he had a part-time job. He just went to focus groups. <laughs> that was so his it job. it sounds like the, the focus group hosts um, were making a, the right or the real decision, not, not a good decision in this case. It wasn't, this was an emotionally influenced decision. Yeah, they made a decision to protect the relationship with the client, which I understand we're all in business. You try to get along. But, um, you know, I try to do a delicate dance where, yes, I want to get along. Yes, I want to be constructive. I also want to look out for my client's best interest, mm, yeah. which does come down to sales, uh, inevitably. So what is actually going to fly? Yeah. What, what is some of the most uh, revealing work that you've done uh, in, in, in a corporate setting? You know, what, what are the, can you give us an example of some of the things that you've done that were really, that sort of surprised you? Um, well, actually, human nature can endlessly surprise you, but I'll, I'll give you one example that would never meet rational muster, but emotionally played. Uh, so for General Mills, uh, they were looking at Hamburger Helper and repackaging it. So I merely came to, I believe, two or three uh, focus groups and listened in and watched what was going on. And by the time I got done, I told them, you know, lose as much as you possibly can from the package cover. What you want to do is is amp up the size of hamburger helper guy. I said, you know, you can't rationally defend this, 
But I will tell you, the women are lighting up. Their faces are lighting up when they discuss Hamburger Helper because what happens? They come home from work or their other errands. No one's going to appreciate the work that goes into getting dinner ready. This is their only companion, so to speak, is this little Hamburger Helper guy while they're in the kitchen. <laughs> so you can't possibly defend this rationally, no. but I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. And they listened. They did pump up the size. They got rid of some of the other things, and they moved forward. I have no idea on their sales data because they don't share that. Uh, but that was the one thing that lighted, lighted up for people. That is interesting. How did you isolate it? How did you isolate Hamburger Helper Guy on everything that is on the cover? That it wasn't the nutrition facts or the the picture of the uh, you know the fabulous looking meal? And sure. Well, I, I wasn't the moderator, but they did move them through the different elements, and okay. yeah, they were like bored, 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 bored. Oh. This, yes, mm. the visual, the graphic, which makes so much sense. We are very visually oriented. About 35% of the brain is devoted to processing visuals. People think in images, not words. So I'll give you another quick example. This happened to be for Bayer. And they said, well, we've tried all sorts of metrics to figure out what's going to be effective with a TV commercial that actually ties into the you know, sales data. So we finally found one which is that I coded the actors in the TV spots looking to see how authentic their emoting was. Because mm. there's very little worse emoting going on than in pharmaceutical ads. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the patient who is dying from this or that and suddenly so joyful because the product works and the doctors showed up and the savior and so forth. Um, Are you saying they and, should hire better actors? Yeah, hire better <laughs> actors. And I, and I have nothing wrong with, yes, if the drug can you know, transform someone's life, I, you know, I t totally support that. I am not being flippant about it for one second. But the commercial is the vehicle. And if the acting's bad, if you don't trust the acting, uh, do you trust the efficacy of the product? Yeah. There's going to be a, you know, a transference going on there. How good are we at, at detecting the, the bullshit factor? You know, the, the, when, we, when we see the ad, that we know that there's something disingenuous about the, the emotions. I that, actually think we're pretty good about it. Um, we were testing for somebody else, a company down in Texas, and people, when the commercial had s smiles that I felt were more genuine, had a better rhythm to them, uh, people did not have an adverse reaction. But when it uh, was not a natural smile, hung around too long, for instance, uh, contempt seeped in, resistance, which is anger, would come into the picture. Uh, in other cases, people will just drop out of a commercial. So let me give you one other favorite example, because you were asking about you know, uh, people's reactions and things I've seen. So there was a commercial for Kraft. I don't mean to, to pick on them, but this is a mistake that other people can make. They had a commercial that was two Caucasian women in heaven. So they're dressed in white. The clouds are white. The appliances are white. <laughs> and the product is, you know, kind of creamy off-white. So you have white on white on white on white. Nobody could see anything. The only color in the spot for like 15, 18 seconds was a blue spatula. And people emotionally dropped out of the commercial. Oh, my god! Because if, if I don't see it, I don't feel it. And there was no color contrast going on the commercial. How the ad agency managed to make this mistake, I can't imagine. But, you know, the old joke is half my advertising dollars wasted. Mm -hmm. I don't know which half. I know exactly which half. <laughs> these, these 18 seconds right here. <laughs> Fix it. Well, and you said, you know, 30% of our brain is, is, you know, targeted to the visual component. Yes. So it's a huge element that is And like that element's really ancient. 
Yeah. And the next most ancient part of the brain is the emotional part of the brain. Yeah. We're talking like 500 million years old and 200 million years old. The rational part of the brain is 100,000 years old. Yeah. It does not have first mover advantage. <laughs> <laughs> we feel before we think. Yeah. And we probably won't bother to think if we don't feel. Yeah. And if we think too much, we're not going to get around to feeling. So, I mean, there's so many ways you have to play this game differently than it's usually played. So I know you've done some work with Tim in the past, and it was on in regards to... Uh, looking at a check versus looking at some what was like it? rewards. Uh, some some of it was travel. Some of it was uh, merchandise. Merchandise, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Tangible versus the you know abstract payoff as a salesperson to incentivize you to get out there and, and close more deals. And 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 the finding there was go with the tangible. <laughs> <laughs> We've got eyes. We have hands. I mean, there are so many studies that show if you go into a store and you you touch a product, it's in your cart. If you get to that tangible moment where you actually lay hands on it, it's for real. Well, I can visually project myself putting my hands around the product. I can imagine myself lying on the beach in the Caribbean. The check, well, that's great, but it's abstract and you have to go through a whole process of how am I going to spend it? Am I going to fight with my spouse about how we're going to spend it? <laughs> Are we going to put it in the savings account instead? It just doesn't have the same sort of immediacy. The well, joke that has to be explained to you in life is never as funny as the joke you just get. Oh, yes. And the joke you just get is, it's tangible. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was. That, that was actually, that was a really fun project. I also, uh, I, I was just reminiscing that when you came to, when, when we started talking about the results before we presented them to the client, you were just so so obvious he was like well of course this is what happened of course and then we presented them to the client they're like really yeah. I, 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 remember, I remember the client going I'm, I'm not really sure if this is really statistically significant like oh my god you know this, this stuff is built on tons of good science yeah no I mean the, the face is, is just par excellence it's got the universality it's got the immediacy we also have more facial muscles than any other species on the planet which makes a lot of sense because human beings are social beings. The point where the brain evolved, took another step, was essentially when we transformed from being nomads to living in villages. Because yeah. the point we started living in villages, we were interacting more. We had to read the signals in other people's faces. Mm -hmm. Our brain essentially kicked in and said, we got to go to another gear now. Mm -hmm. And companies, large or small, are villages and you have to navigate all those dynamics. Can you tell us a little bit about what the... There, there. What were seven basic there, there emotions? There are seven emotions, and, and so help us understand. Yeah, what let's those are. let's run through them quickly. Uh, so you got happiness, as uh, um, you know, Woody Allen said, "Happiness makes up in height what it lacks in length." Okay. So this is this is the only positive of the seven emotions necessarily, which we have to come back to. Yeah, which we have to come back to. So happiness means you know I, I embrace something. So you know some people might think it's a trivial emotion. It is not a trivial emotion. Do I embrace your offer? Do I buy it? Do yeah. I put it in the cart? Do I marry this person versus no, I don't want to go on a second date? <laughs> um, yeah, do I have hope in me? Because in business, you're always selling hope. Right. And so hope is essentially happiness deferred, but you hope for not too long. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's the first one. But there's a downside even to happiness. Uh, you can be what I call a joy bird. That's one of the things I refer to in my new book. Okay. It's one of the forms of happiness. You index really high on joy, the highest level of happiness. Well, if you get too happy, you get kind of oblivious because you think everything's sailing along well and you don't need to pay attention. 
So that's the downside. The upside of happiness is you can be more creative, more inventive. There are studies that show that you get to superior brainstorming solutions more quickly if you're a happier person. You also tend to live longer. Happier people tend to live longer. I would say from the Beatles, for instance, that I happen to be a big uh, music fan, uh, look at the two who are still alive. Those are the two happiest Beatles, Ringo Starr <laughs> and Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These, thi these things work out sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so you got happiness. Okay. Then you have surprise, which is really a neutral emotion. Okay. Because it happens really quickly to you. And so essentially it is, okay, I got a new car for Christmas. That's a positive surprise. That's the curiosity factor for human nature. Negative surprises, I had a new car accident on the way home from work. Mm. That's not so welcome. And the truth is human nature pretty much is geared to considering change and surprises as a watch out and negative. We have to adapt to the change. Think about all corporate clients. What do they say to their vendors? Now, no surprises. Mm -hmm. Tell me in advance what's going to be in the report right. so that I can socialize this in the building, make sure my boss knows before the meeting. We can't possibly put them out there. Yeah, you are not making that shit up. That, no, that, that is, we that hear is, that all the that time. That is exactly. <laughs> I, I have sat with more than one client who said, can we go over the results? Can we say this just a little bit differently? They're watering down the, the results. Yeah. And it happens, and I understand it. Uh, I try not to compromise on the underlying truth, but if they want to put the cosmetic surgery to it, I'll try to survive it. Then you have five negative emotions. You All right, let's get into the you dark got, side. You've got anger. All right. And anger is really important. In my new book, Famous Faces Decoded, and I think this holds up from our other research, about 30%, 35% of our emoting tends to be happiness. So it's a big player. The next big player is anger, which comes in about 30%. Oh, my gosh. Anger shows on more ways on the face, nine ways, than any other emotion. It's a really pervasive and versatile emotion. So anger can range from outrage, like I'm going to kill you, because anger is about control, wanting to make progress. Literally, it's about hitting out, in a sense. You could think of this emotion as a fist. The face tenses up like a snake about to strike coil and strike wow. uh, that's anger and so uh, it's very much around survival it's about beating back rivals and threats and overcoming them and so you can have everything from outrage to mere confusion because confusion means I'm not control of my circumstances I don't know what to do I don't know where to go we don't like losing control and anger is a result of that anger can be caused by that by resistance by you know an injustice that we're going to combat uh, there's all sorts of triggers going on with anger. Yeah. Okay. But it's a really essential emotion. Okay. But it, it, to that point, it, it can then be positive from oh, the perspective absolutely. of driving people to, to do something. You said, you know, that, that outrage of or injustice, right? Injustice, so, that you want to improve the status quo, that you want to make progress. You want to get past the speed bumps. Uh, you know, make the bureaucracy actually move finally and get mm -hmm. something done. So, no, it can be a very powerful and constructive emotion. It depends on the flavor of it and the context <laughs> in which it's used, uh, quite obviously. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. can compel people. Uh, you know, I thought it was very funny. Uh, someone's, you know, laughed when I said or basically dismissed when I said that uh, Steve Jobs was angry. Yeah. Well, Steve Jobs is always angry very often. He used it in a very good way, by and large, which is to say he wanted to come up with stellar products mm -hmm. that had never been around before. And he had a vision of what he could accomplish. Uh, it's also true that Steve Jobs would uh, go ahead and park in uh, Sparks, 
uh, spots for the handicap <laughs> because he, he wanted to keep moving and that was a that was an impediment as far as he was concerned. And I've talked to more than one person who worked at Apple and sometimes in close conjunction with Steve Jobs. And that was not always the easiest thing. Yeah. Uh, his, <laughs> yeah. his, his tolerance for what he considered mediocrity was remarkably low. Razor thin. Wow. Razor thin. Okay, yeah. so we got happiness. We've got surprise. We've got anger. Yep. So the next one I would probably go to is fear. Because if you want to talk about survival, you know, uh, anger is dealing with a threat. Fear is feeling the threat. Yeah. That you are in peril, that there's some risk going on. And, you know, the, the mail code, quite honestly, is, you know, I'm not afraid. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel that. Maybe some, some wuss does, but not me. <laughs> uh, well, I've done work in professional sports. I, I've looked at the most manly of manly men, and really from up close, and they feel a good deal of anger. Now, I'm going to tell you one thing that I got dead right here. I was doing some work for the Timberwolves, and I was looking at Kevin Love's levels of anxiety yeah and i was like whoa these are like 20 22 percent that's about double the norm okay well a year ago he came out and admitted that he has anxiety yeah attacks ah there it was and yeah. i essentially went bingo because when i did the work for the timberwolves i was saying the dynamics of him interacting with the coaches taking advice how he gets along with his teammate yes he's a star but there's a lot of lost money here in terms of the interchange because uh, it's a team sport. It is a team sport. And this and isn't working so well. And that fear, because think about it, when you freeze up, you don't take in information very well. You know, it's not, it's not a good lubricant to communication <laughs> to be afraid. All right. Now I'm getting excited because the Timberwolves <laughs> are my team and I, I'm a big basketball fan. So going to the Timberwolves now, and I know you, you did that work. Obviously, Kevin Love hasn't been on the team for a number of years, but... Um, now they have Tom Thibodeau, who is their coach, who is by all means, uh, and I would tell this, it would, seems like a very angry coach in, in screaming at his players and different things. I don't know if you've done anything uh, recently or just kind of any work there that you could share. Well, I've looked at him anecdotally, but yeah. I, I did have front page coverage in the New York Times because I was hired by the Milwaukee Bucks the season that Andrew Wiggins was in the draft yeah. and going to be taken very high. And the Bucks were frankly kind of lamenting and saying, "Well, we, you know, we're drafting second, so we're not going to get Wiggins." And I said, "Don't worry about it. Uh, the truth of the matter is that Wiggins looks kind of uh, insecure, uh, a little bit afraid. He's tentative." Yeah. I said, "Yes, he'll score his points, but he doesn't have what I would call emotionally speaking broad shoulders. He's not someone who's going to carry your team to a championship." So you're not going to get him anyway, but don't rue the day. Yeah. Move on, look at your other options, see what can happen. Very wow. cool. Okay. Happiness, <laughs> surprise, anger, fear. Then we need to move to sadness. Oh. And sadness is a very powerful and helpful emotion at times uh, for compassion, for empathy. Uh, this index is higher for women than men. This is really the blind spot for guys. And I think you could go back on an evolutionary basis. Uh, the guys were out on the hunt once upon a time. You need to be moving. Sadness slows you down, both literally and psychologically. Um, so if you're on the hunt, you know, being slow to catch the antelope is not a big benefit. And you're <laughs> right. not going to make a lot of friends on the hunt. And you're not, by and saying you're, we got to go more slowly. And your belly's going to be empty. Yeah. And think about the women in the campfire. You know, if they're making the meal, attending to the child, they really want to know how the child's feeling. Is the child in some pain, feeling downcast? How do they make those kinds of connections? 
So it gets poo-pooed, you know, like you're a downer. No one knows if you're down and out, all those kinds of things. Sad sack. But this is a potentially a very helpful emotion. But we'll go back to sports and Timberwolves one more time. So uh, Kurt is beaming here for our <laughs> listeners. Kurt is just beaming. So, so at one point, the Timberwolves brought in a uh, six foot six uh, forward from the Knicks, Randolph, yeah. and uh, I said to David Kahn, "Oh no, no, don't, don't do this." He said, oh, "But he's perfect, six foot six. He could play like three positions." And I said, "I haven't seen a sadder guy since the Indian Chief uh, Rain in the Face." <laughs> who is a companion of Sitting Bull. I said, the guy just looks so incredibly sad, and basketball's about moving quickly yes. down the court. Well, Randolph did not work out, no matter if he had a nice size to him or not. He was locker room poison. He didn't score a lot of points. Uh, he just didn't have the motivation, the oomph to make it happen. So I'm not degrading sadness, but you have to look at context and what attributes it brings and what it doesn't bring. So you, you brought up an interesting thing. He was a locker room kind poison. of poison, right? And so emotions are contagious. Is they that, are, they yeah. indeed are. And so when, we're, when you're looking at some of the stuff or when you're bringing in teams together, you're looking to say, what are those? You know, happiness can be contagious, and, but the same thing can be said for sadness or anger. Or yeah, fear. you really have to look in this case at where the Timberwolves were at that point. They were a pretty sorry team. Oh, yes, they, they were. Gonna, they were going to lose a lot of games. Oh, yes, they did. So you, you, you needed some way to buck up. So having someone who was a sad sack in the locker room was not positive momentum to overturn that situation. Um, I, I think there's other moments, like LeBron James does show a fair amount of sadness. But he shows also anger and disgust and happiness. So he has emotions that offset that. Yep. And the sadness in his case tends to be disappointment, ah. like in a teammate. You know, lift your game. Do better than that. So that's sadness, but with resolve. Got sadness it. just melts into, oh, poor pathetic us. is not going to no bring good. you a championship. No. Well, and I, could, I, I know if you looked at the... Uh, the fans during those those times, you would have seen a lot of sadness in, in the yes. Timberwolves <laughs> on their faces during those games. Uh, but we digress. So we still have, uh, two, we more have two more. Yes, emotions. and these are the spurning emotions. So I've already mentioned contempt and passing. This is, you can kind of think of Snidely Whiplash, the cartoon character. That is contempt personified. Okay. So you have a little smirk at the corner of the mouth. And basically, you are dismissing someone. Now, you can dismiss them because you're confident. Tom Brady smirks a fair amount. Uh, he's upbeat. He's assured about what he is, and he's got the stats to prove it. Uh, but you can also do it just because you're kind of a, uh, an ornery cuss, and you just aren't very nice to people. Anybody, and, anybody come to mind? Oh, all sorts of, all sorts of people come to mind. Um, the president's daughter, for instance, index is very high on this particular emotion. Oh, okay. uh, Yes, Ivanka. Uh, Donald, on the other hand, goes to the other spurning emotion, disgust. So disgust in a literal sense means bad taste, bad smell. Your nose wrinkles, your upper lip curls. This is if something is poisonous and you want to get away from it. So Donald happens to be a germaphobe. Yeah. So disgust and him being a germaphobe go together perfectly. The other thing is that disgust, certainly from an evolutionary point of view, helps protect you. You don't eat the rotten fruit because you sense that it's going to be bad for your system. Yeah. But on a negative sense, uh, disgust can also mean that intimacy is not really great for you, that you just have a natural instinct to back off. And if you know much about Trump's personal life, 
He doesn't have one. Mm. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of close friends, actually. Yeah. Um, and so uh, whether or not that plays a, a dominant role or not, but I think it's in the mix somewhere. Yeah. Well, and um, well, let's lead into to the book that you're, you're just coming out in September, right? So uh, where it's what, Decoding Famous Faces? And yes. So tell us a little bit about what, what that book is going to be about. Well, traditionally as a market research, I've tended to look at large blocks of consumers. You know, sports is an exception. A basketball team's got a small roster. Thank so you. It's, so it's a lot of fun to uh, <laughs> dig into it. Uh, but I really wanted to pivot to individuals because individuals are absolutely fascinating. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Soren Kierkegaard who said, out of the twisted timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Mm-hmm. So the warp and the wood of any given individual fascinates me. So I went through and I took 173 celebrities over four generations. So we're going back to the silent generation, you know, people who came of age in the 30s and 40s and 50s, right up through millennials. I took everything from Hollywood to sports to rock stars, uh, famous business CEOs, media types. Uh, put them all into the mix and said, let's see what indexes high and low and what the patterns are. There were a lot of surprises for me, and some of them are actually almost embarrassing. Uh, and I say that because I'm a big Beatles fan from earliest ages. Not until I became a facial coder did I realize how angry George Harrison was. I kind of went with the George Harrison of, you know, love and peace. Yeah. And all of that and all the nice soft songs from later on. No, George indexed really high, especially among the Beatles, really high on anger. Uh, George worked really hard to learn his guitar leads. It didn't come naturally to him. He was no Eric Clapton. So fortitude took him forward. But he was someone who always wanted self-control, autonomy. He hated school. He hated the dynamics in the Beatles because Paul and John were the closest to. They had the songwriting credits. They didn't even tell him that they had written a songwriting deal uh, for the credits in London uh, because suddenly John and George uh, weren't quite as close because uh, lo and behold, they weren't giving George as many songs on stage because the songwriting credits was another income stream for the two Beatles. And Ringo Starr noted this. He said, you know, I'm a little wary around George because, you know, he can pack a punch. Mm. And he can be ornery. And so, yeah, Ringo was pretty easygoing, but George, he realized, was not uh, so easygoing. Well, you've, you've afforded us uh, an advanced copy of uh, Famous Faces Decoded, and it, it, is, uh, it is really great reading. I was especially interested in, in this difference be- between the way people voted on uh, sort of the, the popular opinion compared to what was actually, uh, th- there's a difference between what, what sort of what the general uh, public sees and what you actually yeah, I, what I did is I uh, surveyed several hundred people and I gave them, I didn't give anyone, you know, all 173 celebrities. So I gave them, you know, I, I basically parsed into three groups and I gave them the different emotions and they could vote on what they thought were the two dominant characteristic motions per celebrity. These are people that they probably rooted for, know very intimately. And uh, the accuracy rate was about 36%. Yeah, so so this this is the question in my mind is if we're, if we're pretty good at detecting the bullshit factor, how is it that uh, in, in this facial coding exercise, the general public's only 37% accurate? Uh, I think because we look without seeing. 
And so I think when we have a real specific element like a TV spot and where it's put in front of us and we need to concentrate on it because we know we're about to have to answer, you know, 18 questions from the focus group moderator yeah. after viewing it. Now, now we'll zero in. Uh, but a lot of times we look without seeing. So, yeah, I miss, for instance, George Harrison being so angry. I looked at all those photographs for all those years, granted before I was a facial coder, but I never really picked it up. Uh, Elvis Presley, to go to another musician, that upper lip that curls yeah. in disgust. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm out of here. I mean, I, I mentioned in the book how this worked great for Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, Presley didn't want to deal with the money aspects at all. Parker was eventually taking 50% of all the earnings of Elvis Presley because Presley would sign contracts without reading them. Oh, just oh say, my gosh. He'd just say, where do I sign? And t Colonel Tom Parker would put it in front of him. But for Presley, probably in part because he was spurned as white trash growing up in Memphis, you know, socially, he, he didn't really want to interact with people. He yeah. was going to be cool on his own terms, and that was kind of it. Well, and it's some, maybe some of that, that disconnect, right, is, is a rationalization too, right? You were saying, hey, I'm a Beatles fan. I love the Beatles. You, you want them to be— You come with a preconception. Yes. I mean, I, I thought about, you know, you know all the, the songs you know, from the late Beatles era and right after the Beatles broke up, and they're all love and peace songs. Yeah. So I think that probably colored my, you know, my sense of who this guy was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we do it all the time. Yeah. So so, we, so it's, it is fascinating. We have both a good bullshit detector in some sense, if we'll just use it. And then we also have this rule of backing off. We, we want to think things are rosy. We don't want to exert ourselves. Um, Again, that's yeah, not but, me. I don't know. Who, or, who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 there is that anchoring factor of coming into something with preconceived ideas about it. And regardless of the truth that's out there, the reality we, we tend to shape the way that we think about it so that that three to five percent part of this is actually then coming back in to say, yeah, but we'll 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 rationalize it away or yeah. discount it and, some way or, you know, purposely ignore it. to a certain And there's degree. two really obvious reasons from evolutionary psychology point of view. First of all, we want allies. Mm -hmm. So our, our first most basic thing is we want survival. So we want to get close to people and hope we're accepted and we'll accept them. And so you overlook some things. The second one is, you know, Freud wasn't completely stupid. Pleasure principle. Yeah. We want to feel good about ourselves. Wasn't my joke funny that I just told? <laughs> sure it was. You laughed, right? <laughs> uh, Even yeah. though that laugh was half-hearted and probably, <laughs> yes, yes, you know, to your yeah. point, uh, fake. Yeah. Yeah. Smirking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it could be a smirk instead of a smile. And those two show very similarly on the face. A smirk and, and a smile. Does? They do. Yeah. They're both at the corner of the mouth. Wow. Okay. Uh, so just what's what's the difference between a smirk and a smile? Then? The corner of the mouth, rather than going out and up more, is more tightly angled, and there's a tension to it. In, in the smirk? In the smirk. Because okay. actually, <clears throat> the traditional view of a smirk is that it combines anger and disgust. Mm -hmm. The disgust is, you lied to me, you're beneath me, I'm dismissing you. The anger is, you know, I'm going to take retaliation for those factors. Okay. And so that's okay. a traditional view of how... Uh, contempt is, is organized. So there is a, what I call almost like a pocket tornado in the corner of the mouth. There's a little dimple because the mouth gets tense at the corner. Okay. I think there's another formula though. I think the psychologists are, are only half right here because feeling smug feels nice sometimes. Mm. Like I'm better than you. And so that's what, that gives you Tom Brady and a whole lot of other people. So I think another formulation that actually has to be looked at is a combination of 
of disgust and happiness. Ah. You know, I reject you, but I reject you, and it feels great. And it so feels good it, to reject it you. It feels good to reject you. So I'm just realizing, Tim, all those smiles to me are really contempt. Is that what the- <laughs> Always, always, Kurt. You, you just I thought you just liked revealed. me, but obviously it's just this feeling of contempt for me. Yeah, so more tightly angled, more tension. That's the difference between the two. Okay. Okay. Oh, good. So we like to we, we do like to we this has been a great music conversation by the way. You've been be basketball and music. And we music. couldn't ask it's for that. Pretty great <laughs> for uh, us too. But uh, let's talk about what your experience has been like then becoming, you know, becoming a facial coder, seeing uh, George Harrison being this angry guy. What does that do to inf- how does that um, impact or inform you about his music? How do you listen to George Harrison today, knowing what you know, or any artist? I mean, because man, I was looking at the list, and there's a lot of there's a lot there. of anger. You know, Beyonce, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Chuck Berry, John Bonham, uh, uh, Kurt Cobain, duh, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, well, 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 let's go back Jimmy to Hendrix. I mean, yeah. a lot of anger out there. Yeah. Well, let's go back to to Harrison. So, uh, early songs like "Don't Bother Me," "Tax Man." I mean, Taxman is an angry song. I want my money. He was the most interested in, in making yeah. the money of all the Beatles. I mean, John just wanted to be rich so he could have freedom. Harrison really wanted the money to like, I want the money. Yeah. And so I think when he transformed himself through going to India and all of that, that was really a personal challenge to himself to lift his game, to try to get out of the angry person that he was. And that's why I think he wrote those songs. Now, I don't think he was able to entirely leave that behind. But he did try to change himself. And I think that's admirable. Uh, a lot of people will not try to improve themselves in life. They'll just kind of slump along as they are and not realize that there's some ways they can improve. I think Harrison did try to improve. I also heard him in an interview after he got back from India and all the work in Transcendental Meditation and how he, uh, he you know, was supposed to be really centered and really focused and really able to sort of shed all of the stress. And uh, he was talking to Dick Cavett, and Dick Cavett said, so did it work? He said, I still get nervous before I go on stage. I'm nervous right now talking to you. And so it was sort of like emotions still are still there with all the work that he did. Very yeah, and, and he's an introvert. If you go on YouTube and you find uh, Hey Bulldog, they have a recorded session of that song. Sometimes they try to make it hard to access it. But you can watch Harrison glower at John and, and Paul when they're at the microphone whooping it up together and he's oh, yeah. just off with his guitar absolute anger wow wow dan hill thank you so much for being our guest today it was my delight this has been our delight as well so yes. this is this is really fun we will be uh pitching uh your new two new books uh coming out this is really great that you've got stuff coming out uh in september in september yes. yeah so uh so um just want to make sure it's September 2018, when depending on when you're listening yes, to this. Yes, it, it, it is September 12, 2018, that the two books will come out. Great. And I highly recommend it. Again, we've uh, we've actually had uh, advanced copies, and we're just loving them. So, so thanks very much, Dan. My pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our pumpkin heads it's a little early for pumpkins hey i was you know uh, okay but by the time this gets out who knows it might just be (laughs) halloween so okay okay fair enough pumpkin heads (laughs) so tim what what did uh 
impressions from the session with Dan? So much. Man, we covered so much ground. Uh, how about China, the facial industrial complex? The ethical, uh, we, we can just rant on that. <laughs> we can just totally rant on the ethical thing on that. Bad so there's actors, a, there, good actors. There's a, a billion dollar company that is focused in on facial recognition yeah. and the ethics of that, right? Where he was talking some of the components from everything of going to the amusement park and various different things. Yeah. But you could also take that in so many different ways. It really is minority report or whatever, where you start getting into identifying who and where and when and what, and that can be really scary. Right. So maybe the ATM doesn't need a uh, pin in the future, that it's just a facial recognition, much as our, our phones are becoming that. So like, there's some cool things, but the idea of you know, everywhere you go and there's a camera on you and you get spotted because you haven't paid your parking ticket from two weeks ago and the coppers are rolling along and they pull you over and the heat's on you and it's all about the man and I'm going to stick it to the man and I don't know how I got off on that. But, but right, there's all these, I, I, I mean, the, the opportunity for bad actors to act um, unethically on on uh, uh, an infrastructure that is based on facial recognition is very high and, it, and really scary for me. It it really is an interesting component, and we've had a lot of these ethical conversations in regards to applying behavioral science into some of yeah. the new technology that is coming out. This one is almost more of just an ethical component from the technology's ability to. Um, be able to to recognize people anywhere and everywhere um, the you know it could get even worse I think if they start bringing in some technological components to the uh, coding of this moving forward so yeah you are out in a public place and you're not only being recognized but your facial emotions are being decoded Uh, you're listening to a speech by a presidential candidate and your facial expressions are being immediately decoded that then go back into what advertisements you see uh going into your facebook or other account at the moment that my face is revealing a particular emotion uh, so if, if I mean, if Google can recognize it, not just the difference between a tree and a house in a photograph, but they can recognize a colonial house or, a, you know, a Spanish house or a Georgian house or a ranch house, you know, you know, what's what's next in facial coding could easily be something that could be algorithmically determined. It, it, it could be. And I think there's the potential for that to be used in unethical ways, both from an advertising perspective, but also from a big brother perspective. You could take this again. I'll go back to Minority Report, right? Where, you know, all of a sudden I, I see that you're encoded with anger. And do I then think, oh, well, given your history and various different things, we need to take you in for questioning because you're you just left the bank and why are you angry or or you're going into the bank and you're angry are you going to rob the bank and fearful yeah so i think there's um a lot to be potentially fearful of and yet is this a fait accompli 
or is it just a, a, the, a what? The, the is it just the future that lies ahead that is that is that we're fated to exist? I mean, people were really scared about about automobiles and felt you know when automobiles were new on the scene, it was dangerous and 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 the well, and the printing press and a variety of press, technological yeah. advancements in the world and yes and we've had again this conversation so it, but is this is this the same thing like are we are, are we going to figure it out well ethically appropriately i think it's just something we need to we will it will happen it you know the world you, you, we don't hold ourselves back right as much as we try mm-hmm. you know the world and technology continue to grow expand uh, move forward I think we need to be thoughtful though and and think about the potential impacts that these kinds of technology technological advances have are we thoughtful enough. That's the question. Are we thoughtful enough? It goes back to some of the components around, you know, applying the big five factors to your Facebook likes and then using that. Yeah. And how, th- how thoughtful were we on that going into it? Uh, and does it take some type of calamity in order for us to actually pay attention to it? And oftentimes I think we tend to, as humans, our behavioral bias is that we need that calamity yeah, in order it has to, to be really big and vivid and extreme all and factors. all that stuff. Okay. Uh, thank Debbie you. Downer I again. Know. Here we go. <laughs> okay, Starting so, off. So, so uh, I can't imagine there was anything in the, in the conversation that you really liked. But I just loved to... <laughs> a lot of things, but to, to go off and, and not be Debbie Downers on this, my, one of my favorite quotes was happiness is not trivial. Yeah. The emotion of happiness we often gets poo-pooed. Oh, it's just happy, it's good feeling, all of those things. But happiness, to his, his point, uh, drives a lot of our decisions and how we respond. And from a business perspective, will we do business with somebody? Because he talked about happiness being aligned with hope and right. that hopefulness. And you, you do business with trusting and hoping uh, and all of those factors. Absolutely. We walk into uh, I mean, we walk into our, our corporate settings every day. We walk into the office with the belief, with the expectation that that job is going to be there at the end of the day and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Right. And that is a sense of hopefulness. Uh, and that when things are unsettling, when there's the rumors of the big layoff, when that starts to get shaken and our expectations start to get screwed with, mm-hmm. right? That's when that's not a happy time for us. And right. it's hard to get engaged. It's hard to get our brain to start processing things properly and to actually be productive or maximize our productivity at work. Right. And he talked about, you know, the businesses sell hope, but we also have to sell hope internally to make sure that there is that engagement in various different things. And so, so I think that is really was was interesting for me, and I found it refreshing. What did you think about the positive and negative 